It's that time again. We're here back. Yeah, let's try that again. Speak English. It's that time again. I prefer French. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's that time again, Lane. No, no driving gloves. <laughs> you want to do it that way. Pepe Le Pew. <laughs> That's about all I know from Pepe Le Pew. It's that time again. We're back with no driving gloves. Will, Derek, and John here to bore you for another week. Well, we'll be exciting this week. Of course, we'll touch with maybe what we did this week. Did anybody do anything exciting, different, out of the ordinary? I was trying to think if I did anything interesting or out of the ordinary, but I... Ooh, 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 I got a new engine. Four. Four. Uh, I'm not sure yet. It's it's a, uh, you know, inline six 200 Ford uh, out of a, a 60... Three or sixty-four Falcon that a a friend at work was uh, turning into a track car, so he was getting rid of the two hundred out of it. And of course, I have the sixty-one Ford Falcon. I could put it in, but uh, my dad and I also have a sixty-five Mustang that has a two hundred originally. So it's it's kind of a you know just spare kick around engine just to have it, I guess. What's he putting in the Falcon? Uh, modern EcoBoost. Nice. Sounds yeah, it's going to be a sweet car. Nice. Two, That's cool. 2.7 Eco or 3.5? To be honest with you, I don't know. He just said he was going to be getting an Eco Boost to stick in it, and I, I didn't ask many more questions. It was very cold the night we were loading. So, <laughs> Is is he going to be building that car on social media anywhere, like updating, like on Instagram or anything like that? I can check for you. Yeah, check check that out. I'd like to follow that build. That's that's pretty cool. I may be uh, having something come in the shop pretty soon that's getting an EcoBoost. Sweet. A kind of a small world after our conversations last week about car buying habits. Uh, I, of course, put, put uh, what do we want to say? Practiced what I preached, and I went to the old Ford dealership to buy an F-150. And, oh, six, eight hours later, and actually thought about it overnight, left with a SHO, so kind of missed the F-150 thing, but the edge went away. But I'll say I'm kind of enjoying the 3.5 liter uh, EcoBoost in that thing. And uh, I think whatever, you know, what's neat about that motor is I think my car's 385 horsepower and the same motor in an F-150 is 425 horsepower and the same motor in a Ford GT 650 horsepower. And it's all just pretty much down to tuning. There's very few internal changes from what I understand. So I think that there you go. I think that EcoBoost is, you know, I can see it slipping in a lot of places that you might think about a coyote going into, but I've heard of a few other people thinking about, you know, using it on a project. So say, I don't know, I've only had car a few days, but I'm, I'm extremely happy with it. It's going to get me in trouble. I know I was giving you a hard time about buying an SHO instead or a, a Taurus instead of uh, an F-150, but I've actually owned a couple of the earlier uh, V6 SHOs. And, uh, man, those things, they were fun, fun, fun to drive. And 
I outrun a lot of Mustangs and, and, and that one that uh, my father and I had. It was it was quick. It was quick. Torque steer, good Lord, it had torque steer, but uh, it, it was fun to drive. Now, this car is all-wheel drive. It has zero torque steer. And, you know, of course, people have said, you went to buy an F-150. But you think about it, the, the Edge worked for me and, to be honest, was the fa- probably my most favorite car I've ever owned, or at least most practical. And the SHO is basically the same wheelbase. It actually has almost as much trunk um, cargo space as the Edge did. It's just not quite as vertical. It's just a little bit deeper. Uh, so, I mean, interior space, I'm the same. Storage space, I'm the same. I'm going to buy a trailer hitch for it so I can pull my trailer like I did with the Edge. So, uh, Edge towed 3,000. This towed 1,000, but I never towed more than 1,000 to begin with. So, to me, it was kind of a no-brainer. And it's, you know, I, I, like I said, I enjoy it. It's, it is a good gt highway cruising car and that's you know i spend a lot of time on the highway and i i churn a lot of miles so we'll see how this one treats me anything exciting on your end will or other than some new office furniture yeah you know finally got me an office guy and outfitted the office with all new furniture top to bottom Uh, other than just trying to stay warm man it's been brutally cold the last week here um, you know, just pretty well the norm. Just you got to be careful. You you can't say brutally cold. Our poor listeners up north that you know haven't crested zero. <laughs> you know, <laughs> well, and can okay. you can you really say brutally cold when you know two of the three guys on this uh, uh, podcast both grew up in the north? This this is just cold. It's not brutally cold. In Alabama, it's different as a guy from the north. You see, it's a it's a wet cold down here, and it, it just it just makes it so so much colder. <laughs> and I don't I don't know, but I'll be honest. This I got in the car the other or was it yesterday morning and eight degrees. That this is Alabama. Go away, eight degrees. It was six degrees this morning here in Kentucky, so... Hey, but you live farther north, so... Well, we do, but, you know... When I was back home for Christmas, it was a negative 16. I see. I got out at one degree. When I left Illinois, the, like, the day after Christmas, it was one. And when I stopped in Pennsylvania, it was 22. And I've always said, temperature increased 22 times for me that day. I'm I'm happy. It, it feels warm when you think of it that way. Because if we started at thir- thirty degrees and it increased twenty two times, you know that that that'd be hot. Yeah. Well, when we left Michigan, by the time we got to Kentucky, I think we had it was like a thirty two degree increase. Okay. Now that we've uh, had the uh, for the southern listeners the James Pan weather hour. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry about that. Sorry. I think we were gonna go on a little bit from our topic last week where we discussed some of our buying habits to after we've bought these cars or our shops have bought cars or our clients have bought cars, what have we encountered as some of our biggest restoration challenges? Whether that be just an individual piece of a car or whatever we're restoring 
to maybe the, the entire project was just an absolute nightmare and the car should have never been started on. Um, you know, we can allude at a couple of things and, you know, I've been chasing uh, a car for three years, you know, working on the restoration. Actually, we were doing the restoration due to circumstances that very little has been done in the last three years, uh, disappointing the client that uh, owns the car. But in those three years, fortunately, some new information has leaked its way out or we found new information as to the original color of the car, a little bit more information on the drivetrain and such, and some of the, in the United States, really hard to find pieces. And when you're working with European cars, sometimes stuff that's, you know, every day or a little bit more common over there in the United States is virtually unobtainable. And unless you know the right person overseas, lots of luck because especially in England, a lot of the shops and people that know, you know, I deal a lot with the uh, 50s, 60s era sports cars. A lot of those people don't have websites. They don't email and their services are in such high demand. They don't even answer their phone. You know, they will, the the transmission in this one car is a, a Wilson pre-selector or it's based off the Wilson pre-selector. It's out of a Riley. And one of the foremost experts in the world on pre-selectors, from what I'm told, he doesn't answer his phone, doesn't do email, doesn't have a, I think he does kind of have a website, but he has so much work. He works on a transmission and when he gets it done, he answers the phone and then, okay, that guy brings him a transmission. And then the it's just kind of, he works on that transmission when it's done, he answers the phone and gets another one. He doesn't have a waiting list because he doesn't ever talk to anybody. You know, I'd say the biggest challenge for us, you know, building cars here at the shop is when it leaves the shop, you know. Um, and this this ain't meaning to bash interior people or, you know, the people that do our chrome plating for us or anything like that. But um, because we're not on time for everything that we do either, and that, you know, that's ain't what this is about. Um, but it's always challenging when the vehicle leaves the shop or a part leaves the shop or, you know, it's, it's, I wouldn't say it's frustrating. It's more concerning than frustrating, you know? Um, and then there, there's certain aspects of the build that are, that are really challenging. The one that's out my mind is on, um, the dart that we built, we wedge cut the roof. And we made a lot larger wheel tubs that uh, came from the factory. And we actually made the quarter glass extend out past the B pillar. So you had more of a, the gap looked right going with the door and then up onto the roof with the, you know, the, the gap on the glass. And it would have been pretty easy just to make that quarter glass fixed, but you know, it's a hard top car. You don't want to fix the quarter glass. You want it to roll down and in, into the quarter panel where it's supposed to. So getting, getting that to actually work and function properly was man. It took, it took months to do. We had to build our own tracks 
get rollers from, you know, certain cars that were the right size and, you know, get a, a power window motor that would operate it properly and then make it work with the switches. And that was, man, that was, uh, that was challenging to do this. The window was a, a lot bigger than it was from the factory and that that hole that it goes down into got a lot smaller we actually shortened the car two inches in that area as well so that was as far as just a single task that sticks out in my mind that was challenging that was that was a tough one right there no i actually um i, I like this topic because i i enjoy and maybe i'm i'm an oddball or something but i enjoy coming across the challenges and i think you know the way john kind of introduced this you know, we talked last week about kind of what we look for when we're buying things like that and yeah you know, when you get into it and get into actually tearing into the car starting the restoration it's when you realize just how big of a mistake you made in buying that vehicle to restore it uh but i think some of the 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 more interesting challenges i've come across in some of the restorations i always find in usually the mechanical aspect of things of course working on the earlier cars horseless carriage brass era uh, things like that much different technology uh, going into that uh, very primitive in some ways and you know the challenge and, and difficulty of essentially trying to reverse engineer what's been done if you can't find information on those specific vehicles and you know i worked on uh, one early car from 1903 had a, an original carburetor on it that None of the other cars built by this company had the original carburetor on them anymore. Uh, very little was known about them. And it took a very long time to figure out exactly how it really worked to be able to understand how the car was going to run. And then once we had it running it wouldn't run quite right. It would run for maybe 10, 15 seconds, and then it would kind of die out. It would just run out of fuel. And no matter what we did, it, it seemed to do that. And finally, we decided, all right, well, let's just choke it off some and see if that works. So, you know, you grab the pop can sitting around and cut the bottom off of it and make it essentially a, a choke butterfly for it and set it up and it seemed to keep it running but then it just wanted to run rich all the time or it didn't want to idle correctly and it just all these problems and it, it probably took a good three four days of, of working on it taking the carburetor on off looking at things to finally realize that it wasn't the carburetor's fault it was actually the fault of the gasoline we were using and what we hadn't taken into account was the fact that gasoline at in 1903 when this carburetor was in in you know put on the car and, and created to run this car was essentially nothing more than white gas about 40 octane uh, you know 
gasoline, white gas, basically uh, Coleman stove fuel is is uh, about the same today as as what white gas was back then. And we were using gasoline that had a completely different specific gravity than white gas. And what it turned out was that because of that, the float was not setting at the right height in the bowl to allow the fuel to operate the carburetor correctly. And so, you know, that was just, that was one big challenge I found in, in the kind of horseless carriage age is really understanding and, and making sure when I'm getting these cars running here at home at work for other people is it, it's that quick lesson that you have to take into account everything that was going on at that time, including the fluids they were putting in those cars, because that was how they were setting those cars to run. Uh, so that, that to me is, is one of the big challenges I've run across mechanically in getting some of these early cars going and, and really understanding how they operate from the aspect of the turn of the century. There's got to be a Lotus that is like throwing you for a loop or something, right? Well, I actually was going to bring up, without getting too specific, car involved with over a decade ago. And this really goes back to buy right, buy the best you can. And this car was part of a business transaction. And the guy who got it thought he got a decent vehicle and then you know he what he wasn't passionate about keeping it or anything but he he traded for this vehicle and it was a um 64 impala convertible every you know everybody want wanted one everybody you know still seems to want one i mean rolling in your 64 and it wasn't an ss car it wasn't a correct car. It, I mean, the motor didn't match. The, it, it just, it just was an Impala convertible that had rust in it. Well, let's just say it was created out of rust or it had become rust. Every piece on that car, cowl back was replaced. Not only did we do floors, we did rockers. And on a convertible, there are inner rockers. <laughs> they don't sell the inner rockers, so the fab shop has to do the inner rockers. And then it needed quarters. Then it needed trunk pans. And it needed an inner quarters. And the guy kind of wanted to make it into an SS, even though it wasn't an SS, because, oh, it'd be worth more. And we're putting all this NOS stuff on it, you know, and it's, it's a waste of NOS parts. So mentally, it's a challenge. I mean, you're wasting the NOS parts, building a fake car um, that was never going to pass as a fake car. Let's just put it this way. When the sheet metal was done, we hadn't put an interior in it. There wasn't a drivetrain in it. The suspension wasn't back on it. But to do the body, to do the sheet metal, I actually didn't even include the paint. To put it in the paint shop, you are looking at, I could have bought my house. And I don't live in a bad area of town. Like I say, I, I usually buy the cheapest house in the uh, 
nicest neighborhood. Those aren't cheap. And it's just, I mean, he had four times what the car was worth, probably four times what the car is worth today in the sheet metal. And then you had to go do paint, which, you know, in a high-end shop, you know, Will's alluded to it. I've alluded to it. And, you know, you're looking thirty, forty thousand dollars for paint, and then you're looking interior. Even if you put a stock interior back in it, you're looking ten, fifteen thousand dollars minimum. And then we've got to put a drivetrain in it. And of course, because he didn't want the uh, three fifty that was in it, and you had to go to a four twenty seven, and you had to go to a transmission. That car was just a challenge from every aspect of the word, from. I said the mental dilemmas on building a fake car, which for me doesn't really fly from the questioning. Why are you throwing this much money into this car? You know, it just got to the point of no return. Well, I've already got, you know, $250,000 in it. I need to keep going, you know, otherwise I just threw away $250,000 and it's literally throwing good money after bad. And in a professional shop, that's, you know, We'll do whatever you tell us. Tell us as long as you know we send you a bill and you write us a check, we'll keep going. But at some point, you need to slap yourself and wake up. I mean, that so that car is just a challenge everywhere from what is it, mental dilemmas to the sheet metal to the unobtainium parts to the waste of NOS stuff. That's you know, and that's just a cheap Chevy. Now I can get into some other cars that. You know, when you take a car and you're ready, you know, ready to work on it and you put it on jack stands and it breaks in half, you know, wait a second, you know, let's, you know, you need to reevaluate that as a customer or a client or you need to buy better in the first place. You know, that's, I guess that's some of my complaints and that's some of the challenges and difficulties I've seen. Will, how often have you jacked up a car and it's kind of snapped off the lift or such? Well, wait a second, wait a second, because my question becomes: it, the car that you're jacking up must must have been a Corvair, because they say it's unsafe at any speed. Jaguar X <laughs> Jaguar so XK even- one fifty. <laughs> Well, I was just thinking, I mean, a Jaguar, I mean, it's just, or a Jaguar, she's a Corvair, unsafe at any speed, just sitting there, you jack it up, it falls apart, right? I mean, so uh, before Will jumps in, I got to go back because, you know, John, you're talking about a car that basically at every turn had some kind of issue, rust, uh, you know, all the different things you've listed, uh, you know, unobtainium parts, um, just just everything so do you feel that in a case like that with a challenge like that when do you decide to cut your loss and turn that into a parts car and go get one that's a little better and just use the any if there are any good parts on that car and put them onto a different car or do you just suck it up and and go with the restoration even though it's as challenging as it is so simply put when when should you step away how much money do you put into it the thing is is say that impala when i did my first preliminary walk around it's 
it doesn't make sense. One of my most enjoyable restorations, kind of challenging, and much like you, Derek, I work on a lot of very low production automobiles. Very rarely do I work on anything that they've made more than 20 of. So there's always challenges when it comes to it. It's just how, you know, what degree of difficulty. Nothing makes me happier than when you're sitting in the conference room and you're discussing doing a restoration with a potential client. And I always throw out the same numbers. To do a car with an interior, you've got 2,000 hours into it. Name your shop rate, you know. You know, if you're 45 bucks an hour, if you're 50 bucks an hour, if you're $100 an hour, if you're 250 an hour, you have to multiply that 2000 by 100. You got $200,000 in labor and I haven't bought a part. We've got to be, that, that makes me happy is when the client can put that math together and realize, you know, the, the car's worth doing. Are, are not worth doing. And then the client needs to be smart enough that when we give you a preliminary that, uh, you know, it looks like you're going to need this and this and this. Even if we get to the point of taking it apart and putting it through the media blasting, once it's done there, you know, or at that point, even at a hundred bucks an hour, you're there in the first 20 or $25,000. And you then know everything. There are no more mysteries. And you, that's where you cut your losses. If, if you, you know, if you're passionate, oh, I think I can do it. I think I can. I think I can. When that car's sitting there in the restoration shop or in your garage or, you know, if you're doing this work yourself and you're looking at it and it's full of rust and pieces are missing, go, th- go through and f- see if you can find those pieces or kind of price those pieces, see if they're available. That's when you make that decision. Do do it at the beginning because once once that car has exposed itself to you, I guess there's nothing left to hide, and it's just a lot of times it's a downhill thing, and you're going to put good money after bad, and you're going to keep chasing it. So it goes back to the statement all three of us really made last week: when you buy buy a car, that, especially for a frame off restoration, buy the best car you can because. The simplest pieces, I think Will might be able to allude to it a little bit later, um, are some of the hardest to create, especially in sheet metal. You know, the sheet the sheet metal works there and such. Will, would you like to expand on just name a real basic piece that you you've had your sheet metal guy do? And you know, does it take a day? Does it take two days? Or I take garnish moldings. <laughs> garnish moldings are some of the hardest pieces to make. Uh, there's generally not a flat piece on them. Um, they generally have several style lines and and they have to fit, you know, perfectly because when you open the door, you know, it's the first thing you see. And as if you're building a car for a customer, you know, they see the garnish moldings more than they see pretty much any part on the car other than maybe the hood. And they just, they have to fit properly. They have to come off and on easily. Cause if, if you've got to get in the door for anything, that's the first thing that has to come off. Yeah. I mean, it's something you don't really think about too is garnish molds. I've spent, uh, 
pretty much all week making a garnish molding. So I'm actually doing that right now. It's not that this vehicle didn't have one. It was just we wanted them to be different. So we're making new ones. And this is a pretty, a fairly simple garnish molding as far as the style of it, but the way it has to go in, the way it has to come apart, uh, the way it helps hold the, this actually for the, excuse me, the back glass on this truck that should be coming out here pretty soon. And it actually holds the back, helps hold the back glass in. So, I mean, it's a pretty complicated piece, but uh, man, you can, you can spend a lot of time on little, on little pieces like that right there. And, and people that, that have them, they don't let them go. I mean, go, go try to find some garnish moldings for a 32 Ford. You're not going to find them. Um, and if you do, you, you're going to, you're going to pay a premium for them. So there you go. Okay. Let's say I bought a, just say a seventies era station wagon with a, a fuel filler door, just a simple piece of metal like that in the hinge. What do you think your guy would have into making that? Two hours, three hours? Well, it depends on if we got to make the hinge or not. You know, if you have to, if you have to fabricate the hinge as well, you know, that's, uh, that's easily a six to eight hour project because the hinge has to, you know, bolt. generally the hinges bolt on the car or, and, and bolt on the, uh, the gas flap, whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, making the hinge operate properly in, 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 finding a spring on it because all them spring open and stay open. Uh, I mean, yeah, that's easily a six to eight hour project. And that's, you know, one fuel filler door on one car, six to eight hours, let's say 80 bucks an hour in the shop. I don't know what your labor rate is and, you know, you don't have to disclose that, but that's a $500 fuel door. And that if, and if you're replacing a fuel door, you're probably replacing something else and something else. So, Maybe this conversation isn't discussing our challenges, but we're pointing out things to be aware of when you're buying, you know, buying your vehicles. Well, an- another one's a battery tray, which I is mean, cor- which is rusted buy- out and corroded on ninety percent of everything out there. Yeah, and I mean, you might be able to retrofit a, you know, a, a battery tray out of something else, but if you're going back original with it. You know, it's it's going to have to look like the original part. And, I mean, a lot of those 70s battery trays had a uh, had some really deep stamping in them. And that's, that's difficult to make. I mean, you pretty much have to either make it in a bunch of different pieces or you have to create your dies and, and stamp it yourself. So, you know, there's... Something else you don't really think about, a battery tray. <laughs> Seal plates. You know, you get an oddball car that doesn't have the correct seal plates or any seal plates like you were talking about. Uh, I mean, most of the time on a station wagon, four-door stuff will work. But say you go find, you go get a, you know, a 61 Mercury Meteor, you know. Um, I'm sure the seal plates were different than a Ford. They probably had mercury or something like that in them. Uh, I could imagine trying to find some stuff like that. It's it's difficult. Well, and I think then when you also get down to 
you know, you talk about garnish moldings, uh, things like that. But even when you get down to something as what seems as simple as an emblem or a molding on the car somewhere for even just different packages on the same car. So, you know, you might have the, now I'm drawing a blank on anything that I could bring up here, but, you know, you've got your base model Chevelle Malibu, you've got your Chevelle SSs. I mean, they're, they're pretty common. There's easy to find restoration parts, but well, let's, let's take your, you know, uh, Mercury Comet over your Ford Falcon. Uh, you know, even the Comet had a couple different trim packages and engine packages you could get, you know, especially some of those oddball Mercury emblems and things are extremely hard to find right now. You know, they're just, those cars weren't saved. There's not a lot of those emblems out there. Whereas, you know, and there were fewer of those cars built, especially with the, the special packages, whereas a, a base model Ford Falcon, you know, those, those emblems and things are out there and they're easy to find. Trying to recreate one of those emblems, even like the, the Falcon kind of reminiscent looking bird emblem that was on there. I mean, if you had to recreate that, it, it would be again, you know, getting a pattern made, mold it, you know, have it cast all that work. And that's, that's a lot of money. So it is, sometimes it comes down to even the smallest parts that can become some of the biggest challenges because they're the little pieces that get lost over time and just no one has them laying around. Yeah. When you get into the, you know, even the later model cars, when later, later seventies top cars and those plastic pieces are broken, you know, uh, you know, and then those cars are in that, in that crazy window where, the aftermarket doesn't support them and all of the decent, you know, new old stock and OEM parts are discontinued. That's something else you would, that would be really, really difficult to find is, you know, plastic injection molding type pieces that are known, especially, you know, late seventies, hell, even in the early seventies, they started using a lot of plastic, you know, that stuff just gets cold and, hot and cold and hot and then you know you tighten that screw just a little too much and pow you know that piece is broke so if, if you're uh if you're looking to build a later model car then you know definitely look at all of the the plastic pieces and make sure all that stuff's still intact in and not broke and brittle and everything else so jumping right back to the beginning of the show we, we and... went back to last week didn't we <laughs> <laughs> well, we 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 kind of we've kind of went to last week. We're kind of all yeah, over we, the place we, here. Yeah, I, I hope you can follow this, but I'm going to rotate this back. We're getting down to the last third of the show or so. Derek can come up with this topic, and I think oh, know, I'm going to blame, blame Derek. Uh, I, now I'm going to throw it. I'll throw anybody under the bus, including myself, if the chance <laughs> if I ever make that mistake. But let's each discuss one thing 
And I'm going to say one particular item that was extremely difficult, not from a financial standpoint, not because the buyer or the client made a poor choice, but, you know, I'll go first to kind of give a feel and let you two kind of, you know, think this through, but something that has had, you know, just should have been the easiest thing in the world, but for some reason it took forever and ever and ever to put together or research and figure out. I'm kind of on the fence about two or three things, but uh, there's some of these engine mounts that Chapman designed and how, how he got the steering column through them, difficult. You know, this is based on Lotus. All of this is Lotus because... Colin Chapman and his infinite genius did not necessarily use some logic on certain things. Uh, throttle pedal linkages. He had some of the most complex throttle pedal linkages. Uh, you know, a bar that goes to a bar that goes to a bar that goes to a pivot that goes, you know, <laughs> thank God we eventually, I guess, invented a cable. But right now I'm, and I, I've put it together and disassembled it and put it together and disassembled it. And I you know, finally, this is like I said, after three years, I, I found pictures of a linkage for this pre-selector transmission and a pre-selector transmission. And what it is, it's, it's a, it's similar to say to what cord used a pre-selector transmission and a cord, it was uh, pneumatics and stuff that uh, allowed you, you, you would put the car in first gear and you, you use the clutch pedal to lift off the clutch pedal, use your clutch pedal as a clutch pedal in, in first gear once you're to speed. Once you're to speed, you move your little shift lever, and it's not an, a lever like in a five or six speed. It's a little knob or something on the dash, and you move it over to two. And then when you're ready for second gear, you push that clutch pedal in and lift it back up, and the car engages second, and so on to third and to fourth. And while that, you know, like I said, that's an all pneumatic in the cord. Uh, gentleman in 1898 invented the, um, the Wilson. He invented the pre-selector transmission. He's also known for inventing the modern military tank for World War One. But what a pre-selector transmission does is exactly what I just described. You, you take off in first, then you go to, you know, once you're in gear and you're moving, you just move to second. When you're ready for second, you push the pedal in, lift up. You don't miss shifts. Uh, it made a sh the shifting quicker because there was no double clutching in that. This is in the days before synchros. So these transmissions were popular into the 50s uh, until the synchronized gearboxes came into play. And to be honest, a modern Porsche PDK is technically a pre-selector transmission. We just have all the electronics and stuff. I think I've touched on that in previous episodes. But where my challenge is, is when we bought the transmission we have in this chassis, and we're retrofitting it to the chassis because the car had carried a different motor transmission package when we got it, but this is the motor we're putting in the correct motor transmission package. I don't have any clue of what the shift linkage looks like to go from that pre-selector lever over to the to the transmission when this is a right-hand drive car, so my steering wheel and shifter lever are on the right-hand side of the car. The little knob on the transmissions on the left-hand side of the car, and I've got to get this linkage to go over there, 
and I've put together various pivots and, you know, rotating things in different lengths, uh, threaded rods, trying to design this thing. And it's just one challenge after another. And I get it working one day with all the little prototype pieces. And then I come back the next day and it doesn't work. And it's just been an ongoing challenge and ongoing challenge. And I finally found some pictures and I'm on the right track. I just don't know where, you know, I just can't get out of the tunnel to see the light. It's, it's really been, it's been a nightmare. It's tested all the geometry I know. It's tested, you know, algebra. It's, you know, tested our water jet because I've made all kinds of pivots and brackets and things like that. And, you know, even make some of them with multiple holes and multiple, you know, so I don't have to keep making individual, you know, we'll try this series of holes in this series, but going round and round and round there. That has nothing to do with buying the car. That has nothing to do. It just has to do with time consuming work that at the end of the day, it doesn't look like you did a damn thing. And sometimes you didn't. Sometimes you went two days backwards and you just keep going and going and you persevere, uh, it makes the job very frustrating. That's part of it. I think that's what all three of us signed up for. And if you get into this, that's what you sign up for is that frustration. And there's a lot of joy in it. Problem solving is brings me more joy than anything. You know, anybody can do the easy stuff. It's the hard stuff. And uh, when we stopped on the car three years ago, I had begun to work on this situation. And now that we've restarted and I'm really focused on this car, that situation keeps rotating back around and back around and I'll figure it out. And, uh, it, it'll be very rewarding to get in that car, start it, run it around the track and be able to choose, you know, choose the gears the way that originally Michael Young was the driver of this car and, the way he built the car, the car I believe was delivered to him without a motor and transmission from Lotus. And that was pretty common in the day. So this is something he put together. He was familiar with running. Unfortunately, everybody who drove these things is long past. And it's a matter of putting things together from memories. And believe it or not, nobody took pictures of the shift linkages and that because it wasn't exciting. Which one do you want to go first with your, uh, dilemma problem i've actually got one that's pretty similar to yours um i I was just thinking back as you were talking and and it it hit me when i was uh working at another shop we built a a 56 chevrolet station wagon it had uh this was in oh lord when, when did we build this car I think we started it in 2003. Yeah, so 2003. It had um, all C5 Corvette running gear, transaxle, you know, all that stuff. And um, we had a later model Camaro shifter and the Corvette transaxle. And, you know, this was a gated shifter and having a cable that went from the shifter all the way back, you know, to the transaxle, 
getting that thing to work where it went into the right gear and the right gate in the shifter. I know this sounds crazy, but it was real similar to what you were dealing with. I would, it was all in the length of the, uh, the little arm that bolted onto the transaxle onto the transmission, man, you could cut, I mean, hardly any off of it and, and change it less, you know, less than the thickness of a saw blade. And it would, it would just be totally jacked up. You'd have it close and be like, all right, just needs to go just a tick more. And you would cut it, weld it back together. And it would be so far off. And man, I worked on that thing. I mean, something that should have just bolted together, you know, um, dude, I worked on that thing forever trying to get that thing right. And, you know, once, once I found the sweet spot, it was, it was done, but there'd be times where I'd have it tacked together. I'd leave, I'd come back in, I'd have it real close. And it seemed like it was a mile off, you know, um, which is crazy that, that, that happens, but we, we call them shop gremlins. They come in at night and just totally screw everything up for you. Um, but man, I, you know, it was, it was frustrating on my part because it's something that's so simple, but it was just really kicking my tail. And, you know, the guy I worked for at the time was like, dude, what's, what's the problem? And I'm like, man, just, just help me on this for a little bit. And, you know, he had helped me for a couple hours and he, he was just shaking his head going, I, you know, I have never seen nothing like this. Um, cause we got a, we had a, I had a Camaro, uh, shift arm, you know, so technically it should have just, you know, all bolted up and worked. I guess there was a little, maybe a little flex in that cable and man, it was uh it was a nightmare, but you know, we got it and went about our business. So what about you, D-Rock? Okay, so I had one story in mind, but then the stories you guys told made me think of a different one, so I'm going to tell them both. Uh, because the one that, that you guys made me think of is a short one, which is I had the same problem with shift linkages on a BMW Isetta. If anybody's ever been under one of those Isettas and just the way the shift linkages work on it took me hours to get it because the way they're they're designed it's and it's been so many years but like first and second are on one rod and third and fourth are on another and it's got basically a a, a almost like a, a turnbuckle system and it you can get like first locked in, but second won't go in. So you adjust it a little bit. Second will go in, but then you lost your adjustment on first. So you have to tweak it until it's just the right spot on all of them. So they smoothly go into, into gear. And it was the most absurd thing I'd ever done. Um, or at least one of the most absurd. But the, the main story I wanted to tell uh, about the challenges, of course, this was a, a job for, for work and not for, you know, home pleasure or anything like that with one of my, you know, privately owned cars. But in the museum world, we get fairly 
particular on on making sure things are historically accurate. You know, like John's saying, you know, the transmiss pre-selector transmission he's putting in, it, it, he wants it to be exactly the way it was. And uh, th this story goes back to my time at Henry Ford Museum with the Type 38 Lotus that Jim Clark drove. Of course, we're trying to make it look like a, a certain moment in time. And of course, that, that moment in time is during the 1965 Indy 500. What did it look like when Jim Clark was driving it to you know, winning the, the 1965 Indy 500? And of course, it had been repainted and, and it took probably the, the better part of almost a week to get every picture together that I could and basically based on all the different measurements from different pictures, taking into account essentially the parallax of, of the angle the picture was taken at, counting rivet heads uh, on the side of the monocoque to literally figure out exactly where all of the decals would have been positioned, where certain screws would have been attached to um, you know, certain uh, pieces of the, the body, the, the covers that went on over the engine and all these different things uh, to try to make that car appear as it did in 1965. And, you know, sometimes when you get into trying to make that car represent a certain point in its life, that can become a big challenge, especially if there's a lot of, you know, a, a certain intricate paint scheme on it, or in the case of a race car, you know, a, a lot of sponsor decals and, you know, hand painted numbers in the roundels on the side of the car. Uh, so that was, that was a, a big challenge in that restoration was making sure we really got everything exactly where it needed to be and made that car look the way it did, as I say, in 1965. And, you know, thinking on something like what Will does, you know, um, let's say 50 years from now, someone wants to restore one of the cars, you know, Will, that you've done, and you've got a, a certain stripe kit painted on it or something like that, or a certain two-tone paint job, you know, those people are going to be looking back on on that car that you did, pictures of it, things like that, trying to measure and figure out exactly where those lines you did were. And uh, I find that to be a challenge occasionally with um, with the restorations. And even in the case of like my 1917 Overland, there's not really any unrestored Overlands from 1917 that we currently know of. So even in that case, how do you know what the exact paint color on that car was? Uh, you know, trying to uh, track down the the close to the right color green that goes on the body can be a big challenge. You know, you look around what what other people have done. Um, and, you know, fortunately, in my case, I, I found out that a, a friend of a friend had found a can of original paint from the Overland factory that evidently one of the old dealerships had and it kept kicking around and uh, he was able to actually have one of the paint companies actually basically chemically 
evaluate the paint and get what we believe to be the closest color of green for Overland for about the 1916-17 era um, that we could come up with at this time. So, yeah, that's I'd say that's one of the big challenges is, you know, that that kind of if you're especially trying to restore something, getting those exact colors and those exact features right. Dude, that's incredible. Where did he find that paint at? Uh, I, he might even found it at the Hershey swap meet. Yeah. It was an unopened can of paint from probably like a dealership from needing to do, you know, a, a touch up job or something. And it, it had just been kicking around for all these years. That That is incredible. It's called lucky. <laughs> very, very lucky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know, there you go. I mean, there's there's your hope on if you have that needle in a haystack, it, it's out there somewhere. You just you just gotta a be lucky and b have the money to pay for it. Most of the time in this industry, it's luck. Uh, seven, ironically, same year, seventeen Packard uh, Cloverleaf Roadster, one of like eight of these cars that was built over a five year period in time. Um, the client that I was do, doing the car for, he stumbled across correct bumpers at the Hershey swap meet for this car. I mean, you know, as big as that place is to just happenstance across a can of paint or bumpers or, you know, and, and it's not like there's 12 booths with this paint or 12, you know, 12 booths with the bumpers. It's it really comes down to luck and, you know, knowing what's there. Quick, quick little story right quick. Don't really pertain to much, but, uh, that's our episodes. (laughs) That's right. Uh, a, a good friend of mine had been, he was a swap meet goer, man. He, he went, he had a bunch of, you know, used parts and new parts and, wheels and tires and man he just went to swap meets all over the country and been doing it for years and he was actually at uh here in gadsden alabama there's a show at knockalula falls and it, it used to be one of the largest swap meets around and he was set up in a spot and this guy picked up this box and it had a set of uh, interior door handles in it. So the guy picked up the box and shuffled through them and looked at them and the guy's eyes got pretty wide open and Dirk Benefield was this guy's name. And a guy looked at Dirk and he goes, do you know what these fit? He said, yep. He said, so you know what they're worth? And he goes, oh yeah, I know what they're worth. And he goes, what are you asking for them? He goes, I don't know. You tell me what they're You know, you tell me what you'd give me for them. And a guy said, I'll give you $2,500 for them right now. Now we're talking, it was, there were four, four door handles, 2,500 bucks. And, uh, so Dirk was like, Hmm, man, I don't know. You, you know what they go on. He goes, okay, 2,700. And Dirk goes, ah, man, okay. So the guy paid him, and and a guy, Dirk's best friend, goes, 
Dirk, what the hell didn't fit? He goes, I ain't got a clue. <laughs> he he didn't know what they fit, but he knew that he had that guy on, on, on the hook and he wasn't going to let him know he didn't know what they fit. But he said he'd been toting around them door handles for about five years and uh, didn't have a clue what they fit. He said he took $10 for them and he got $2,700 for them. <laughs> you know that story really doesn't bode for what we've discussed for 32 episodes about car guys helping car guys out. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, he was uh he was a student. Join us next week and we will discuss how we've screwed you in every deal. <laughs> hey, no no no, no no no. I think the lesson from that is and and I'm sure all of us do this at a swap meet. You never let on. Nope. You never let on that they have something good because you they you don't know that they you know know that they have yep. that. I mean that's the first thing I do is I never try to give away that I just found the part that I need that I've been searching for yep. for years. <laughs> I just kind of look at stuff and go, huh. This is kind of a cool piece. How much are you asking yeah. for this? <laughs> now, I I, I I channel my inner will, and I go, you know, oh, that's that's cool. You know what it fits? Uh, no, but I'm building a street rod and, or excuse me, hot rod, and I think I can. Uh, I think I think this will work. You know, I I give you twenty bucks for it and see where it goes from there. Of course, on the flip side, if I'm walking through a swap meet and I've done this before. I see a something laying's, and you know the guy's got it priced five bucks or something. I'll go, hey, do you realize that's a crankcase for a uh, thirty packard? <laughs> you, you might want to raise the price. Oh, I didn't know what that was. I got it with a whole bunch yeah. of parts at a you know at, a, at an you know farm auction. Well, thanks a lot. What do what do you think it's worth? More than five dollars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've done I've done that before. Yeah. You know, we're, I'm not going to give him I'm not going to give him the answer. If you want to get more than five dollars, research that much. I've just told you what you got. So that's that's right. That's exactly right. I had yeah. a I had a guy come up to me at a Carlisle swap meet a few years ago, and I was wearing a logo for the museum I wear work at, and he goes, "Are you from there?" Yeah. Well, there's there's some Lotus parts down here. You need to, you need to go check. And okay, so you know I walked by and saw them, and went by you know later in the day and looked at them again, and they were still there. And went by later in the day, and it was basically just a rear clip for a Lotus Twenty Three C, and uh, a guy had it priced like two hundred and fifty dollars or something, and which was dirt cheap. Uh, don't get me wrong, but you know went up and he didn't recognize the logo on my shirt. And, uh, ended up negotiating the thing for like a hundred bucks. And, you know, I, you ha I've used it as a wall hanging in my man cave and stuff. It's behind my shop right now, but it's, you know, just a cool piece of all original patina, fi patinaed fiberglass from a car that was raced in the Northeast. And, you know, this guy said he'd bought, bought the entire body five years earlier. And this was just the last piece that was left, whether or not that was a load of BS or not, I don't know, but you know, you sometimes we'll score deals like that. Um, but again, if he would have known what my shirt meant, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have been paying a hundred bucks for that piece. I think there we probably should wrap up the show. Uh, I don't know if we really, I'm not even going to, I'm not going to do a analysis of this. I, I think we covered some good things and you take your nuggets where you can out of this episode. 
if you guys have uh, talked yourself dry, I'm going to call it and say goodnight to everyone. Nighty night. Uh, I'm out of here. Adios. Sayonara.